Uh, we're in a teaching series right now. We're walking through the book of 2 Peter. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up or turn it on and get it uh, to 2 Peter. Chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Uh, you will need to be able to get to chapter 1. It's not going to take a lot of effort. One page, you can do it. Um, but we're going to be looking at 1 and 2 a little bit. And we're doing this teaching series. We're calling it Step Up, and we're doing that for a reason. Um, one of the things that you hear around this church all the time, it's a newer thing. It's about six months uh, we launched this vision. We were just studying and praying and just felt like the Lord was leading us to be all about discipleship, which is what uh, a healthy church should be about. So we say this all the time, we're disciples making disciples. We thought to begin the new year, what does it look like to really be challenged in our discipleship for this new year? And Second Peter is a big challenging book to challenge your discipleship. And the idea of step up is to take the next step in your walk with the Lord. Uh, different people are in different places, so what does it look like to take one more step um, and Peter challenges us quite a bit. And so I'm pretty excited to jump into this uh, passage with you to challenge our own maturity and growth in discipleship um, this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I pray, uh, God, that um, when people leave here, Father, that they would be drawn to your word, that they would be drawn to the person and work of Jesus, that irregardless of preference, irregardless of um, things that we would want and things that we don't want, whatever we find ourselves, God, my prayer is that when we leave here, because of the um, piercing, life-changing effect that your word can have on us, that we would leave here different than when we arrived. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, anybody around, anybody here a uh, roller coaster lover? Can I get any hands? I knew this section would be. Any, any, anybody... Okay, let's try this. First and second service, this was kind of a neat thing. Anybody just not like roller coasters? Let me see your hands. There are more in this room that do not like roller coasters than do like roller coasters. I love them. I love roller coasters. In fact, when we had our kids, I couldn't wait uh, for them to be allowed to get on roller coasters. Uh, really, I'm just, I love it. And so I would like do everything I could. We would go to the Indianapolis Zoo, and I'm like, stand on my foot. You'll get tall enough, I promise. Like, get them onto these roller coasters. They're going to love it. We lived in Kissimmee when we were first married, Kissimmee, Florida, and it's right near Disney World. And so we would always be excited. Like, if our kids, if we raise them here in Florida, then we're going to go there a lot and they're going to ride. And if, they, if we don't raise them here, they're still coming here because um, that's what you do. So well, we made a trip about a year and a half ago, and finally my son Caleb was old enough to get on a roller coaster and uh, the big roller coasters at Disney World. And I was so pumped. He was tall enough, weight enough. It wasn't going to be dangerous. And so we got on this roller coaster for the first time, and I got this picture that shows you how much I love roller coasters, right? <laughs> so we were on Splash Mountain. If you've been to the Magic Kingdom, you know Splash Mountain's a lot of fun. And you get to the end of Splash Mountain, you come up on, you just look down this giant hill, and you're like, oh, and they got the fake thorn bushes there, and you're going to come. And Caleb was so pumped, and I was obviously too. And I knew they'd take this picture on the way down, I didn't know where, so I had to hold that pose the whole ride down. <laughs> Right? So that's Caleb under my left arm, and that's Titus, our student minister, Jed. That's his oldest under my right arm, and I'm, yes! So I don't know if they had fun or got a headache out of this, but I love it. And here's why I was so excited to bring my son on this roller coaster, because when you ride roller coasters, you can get that thrill, that adrenaline pumping through you, right? And you can feel so excited on the roller coaster, but in the back of your mind, you know you're safe. Like in the back of your mind, there's still this control factor. And I understand how this works and that. I know I'm safe. So I can let loose and just have fun because I'm safe. And there's a control there. Like it's a controlled uh, adrenaline rush. And 
Uh, I think what happens oftentimes is we equate our spiritual lives to like a roller coaster. And we think that following Jesus on this journey he's invited us to would do this. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. It's, it's not always going to be fun, but I know it's going to be this rush because I'm living on mission. But man, I also get to control some of it. And many of us, we wouldn't put words to that, but we're, we do hold on to some things. And we think, oh, I want to release it, but I'm going to feel this adrenaline rush. And I got just enough rush from Jesus, and that's enough. And I can control some of the other things. But when I read First and Second Peter, I look at this wild life of following Jesus, this incredible story that your life becomes when you live on this great mission, and I don't see anywhere where we get to control any of it. I just don't see that when I read it. Is it an adrenaline rush? Oh yeah, it's fun. It's, a, it's so exhilarating to follow Jesus. But for some reason, we get under this false understanding that we get to control some of it. We can still hold on to some things. And yet, First and Second Peter tell me that no, following Jesus is a call. It's a call to a radical, costly, immediate obedience where you release control. I don't get to control this journey that I'm on when I'm really following Jesus. See, this is the message of Second Peter particularly. As we get ready to jump into this chapter to look at this wonderful story of following Jesus, what it looked like to follow Jesus, and how it's not quite like a roller coaster, but it is still an exhilarating journey, um, I want to provide a little bit of context. And it's important that we understand this context uh, because it's going to add more to the 10 verses we're going to look at this morning. We have this thing we say around here all the time, context is king in terms of Bible study. Everybody say that with me. One, two, three. Context is king. Context is so important when you study God's word because it just adds more depth to what you're studying. And we started this series three weeks ago. David did a wonderful job walking us through chapter one of Second Peter. I mean, the whole chapter in three weeks. And if you've missed it, I want to encourage you, jump on our church app or the website and go get caught up because that context will add to it. Two things in particular I want to keep fresh in your mind as we, right before we walk into chapter two. And in chapter one, Peter lays out for us Two principles that you must keep in mind before jumping into the depth of chapter 2. And he starts in verse 12 of chapter 1. We'll get it up here on the screen for you. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. So he says, I'm always going to be reminding you. That's a big goal in my life. I want to remind you. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So real quick, right away, he says, hey, the goal that I have with you and doing life with you is to constantly remind you of what you already know to be true. And here's what I'm convinced of. Oftentimes at church or you go to a conference or a Bible study or you participate in something, you show up thinking, man, they're going to give me some new truth that I haven't heard and it's going to be Twitter worthy and it's going to be awesome and I'll take a picture and do a cool little Instagram post and everybody's going to like it because it's this new truth. And we come searching for this new dynamic truth when I think a lot of the times what we really need in our life is to be reminded of what we already know is true. And we just need to come back and be reminded. And Peter says, that I know about you. He says, I know about you is that oftentimes you forget what you already know is true. He says in verse 13, I think it right that as long as I'm in this body, a translation, as long as I'm alive, the goal of my life is to stir you up by way of reminder. Let's stir you up. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not much of a cook, okay? Can't be trusted in the kitchen, and rightly so. I do make a really mean taco ring, but that's it, okay? It's all I can cook. My wife doesn't trust me, and I'm, I'm okay with that because she's good at it. So 
But every once in a while, she'll call me into the kitchen. She'll say, hey, will you stir this while I work on this? And some of you are like, yeah, I know what that's like. So you go in and you stir. And I wonder to myself sometimes, why am I sitting here stirring this? And she'll say, it's because if you let it sit, it'll ruin the recipe. You've got to make sure all the ingredients come together the right way. You've got to make sure that nothing sits and gets stale. So you've got to keep it stirred because it's important for the rest. And Peter's saying this, look, I want to stir up your affections for Jesus in the same way by reminding you of the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Because, because if I don't stir you up, atrophy will set in. And when atrophy sets into a spiritual life, it ultimately can lead to spiritual death. For many of us, we haven't been stirred up because we're seeking something. And Peter's saying, no, 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 let me just remind you of something. It doesn't have to be something new. It can be a truth that you already know. And he finishes up, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, I'm, my life's coming to an end as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, at any time, recall these things. He says, so the big goal of my life is that when I'm gone, you don't need me anymore because I've reminded you over and over and over and over again about Jesus. And I love that because it ties in so well with what we're trying to do as a church. We have disciples making disciples. Look, here's the deal. What happens on this stage is not the most important thing. And I am not naive enough to think that six weeks from now, if I were to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, you could tell me everything I'm about to preach to you. That's just not the way it works. That's not discipleship. It's an important piece of discipleship. But an even more important piece of discipleship is to stir up by way of reminder in people their ability to recall the things of Jesus over and over and over again, even when you're not there. You see, it's not about making a star of the stage. It's about making a star of Jesus. He's the hero of the story. He's the one we need to point all of our attention back to, and we need to be able to do that even when certain people aren't there anymore. That's discipleship. Let me illustrate it this way. This art of remembering, this important thing of remembering, is practical too. My daughter, Abigail, we call her Abby. Six years old, beautiful girl. I love my daughter. I am just love my daughter. I love being a dad of a little girl. But there's about five and a half minutes of <clears throat> every single day that are really hard. When her mom is brushing her hair, it's really hard. Because if you're not in the room and don't know it's coming, you think she's dying if you're in the other room. So you come running in, what's going on? What's wrong? Uh, uh, you're brushing her hair again. Okay. Because she screams in agony and she questions the love that you have for her and yells, it hurts, it hurts. Why are you doing this to me? This is horrible. Why, why, why? And there are moments, if I'm being honest with you, where I'm like, get the scissors and cut her hair off because if she can't handle it, she shouldn't have it. And it's like, no, you can't do that. And I don't say that a lot. But I've said, <laughs> it's frustrating. Like, why are you screaming so much? Why are you causing such a problem here? This is not that big a deal. And in those moments, the best tool I have is to remember, genuinely. I remember when the doctors handed me my little girl for the first time. I'll never forget it. We, at the hospital that she was born in, it was this cool thing where they handed her to me, and I was getting ready to walk her out to introduce her to Sarah's parents for the first time. And I'm like, they handed her to me. I'm like, this is a girl. I don't know what to do with a girl. I grew up with a brother. Ah. You know, all of that. And I go walking after uh, the nurse, and she goes through a set of double doors, so I go through a set of double doors, and then I noticed that these doors closed, and she went through another set, so I let her go, and I let them close, and for a minute, just me and my princess, and all the emotion floods in, and oh, man, that's my little girl, and in the moments where it's hard to brush hair, 
You just, so frustrated. I just need to remember how much I love this little girl. And it helps me through the difficult times. You see, the art of remembering, Peter's on to something. He says, look, the goal is to stir you up by way of reminding you of how important it is to stay loyal to Jesus. Well, then uh, another thing that helps me constantly is to remember this idea in my own spiritual life. There are times where I just need to remember all the big heroes of the past. Martin Luther said this. He said, every morning, every day, I preach the gospel to myself because every day I forget it. I need these reminders in my life over and over and over again. I've got to be reminded over and over and over again of the truth of Jesus. And Peter knows that, and so he says it very clear, clearly. I'm going to remind you. And he says, remind you of what? And David did a wonderful job last week of walking us through how important God's word is. And so if we keep going in, in chapter 1, look down at verse 19 through 21. I want to read these verses to you. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place. So the word of God is a lamp for you to shine, a path for you to live your life on in a very dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he says, hey, what I'm going to remind you of is the Word of God. It's not something that somebody made up. It's not some, uh, some teaching that's way out here. It's, it's just not. I want to stir you up by way of reminder, bringing you back to the truth that we find in the Word of God that was given to us by the Holy Spirit. Here's a good way to say it. The Christian worldview. Everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, every human being on our planet has a worldview. It's simply the lens, the grid by which you interpret your reality. So you experience something, before you draw a conclusion, it filters through the way you view the world. And he is saying, for the Christian, the Word of God is that filter. We experience something, we filter it through the Word of God, and as a result, we live out a life that is pleasing to him. He says, that's how it works. I need to remind you always to go back to the Word of God. You read chapter 1, and it's like, this is great. Verses 1 through 11 describe this awesome life that the Christian lives with all these incredible qualities that most of us, if we have a beating heart, would want. And then he says, if you want these, I need to remind you, they only come from Jesus, so I need to continually remind you to come back to the Word of God, and you're done, and you're like, this is awesome. I love chapter 1. I could read this all the time. This is great. But there's a chapter 2, and chapter 2 gets difficult. You might even say it's kind of doom and gloom. I'll say it's not easy to prepare to preach through. It's really hard to read. Doom and gloom, it's hard. But I would say it's actually more of a, a, a positive negativity, if you will. It's a negative thing to talk about that's intended to produce a positive result in your life. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, many of you and some of the people sitting up here are going to be going to get or have gone to get your driver's license. And you want to learn how to drive. And in order to drive, we had to go through a driver's education course in school. And I remember going through this course and sitting in this class. And in order to teach us how and to keep us aware and make us intentional drivers, they would show us these movies, these videos, of what can happen if you're not intentional. And they were graphic, and they were gruesome, and they were hard to watch. You would turn away, and you, oh, I don't want to see that. And it was really difficult to see what could happen if you're not careful as a driver. And all these years later, it's ingrained in your brain. Why? It was a positive-negative approach. A negative thing to talk about 
that would produce a positive result in your life. This is the message of 2 Peter chapter 2. This is a hard thing to talk about. But if you'll allow it, it will produce a positive result in your spiritual life. We will learn to flex our spiritual muscles. We will learn to mature in our walk with Jesus as disciples, followers of Jesus. We will learn a brand new element of that truth if we will let it. And so Peter begins. He says now, he opens it up. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, but... So essentially he's saying, in spite of all the good that we just talked about in chapter 1 and how incredible chapter 1 was, there's something else we need to talk about. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now look, you see, you're like, oh, here we go. This is a hard one to talk about, but here's the deal. We don't shy away from it. We're preaching through 2 Peter. So you get to 2 Peter chapter 2, you preach through 2 Peter chapter 2. Here's what I love about New Hope. I love working at this church because this church values God's word. I love working at this church because our number one core value as a church is biblical authority. We take it very seriously. We study it consistently. We're open to people coming in, but we want the word of God to guide us. And so anything that someone brings in that's teaching, it has to filter through here. I love that our elders get together on Saturday mornings. And on Saturday mornings, a group of elders get together to study the word of God and to pray together. I don't have many friends in ministry that could say the same about their elders. I love that. New Hope has a high view of scripture. So when we get to a difficult verse or a difficult passage like the one we're studying, we don't shy away from it because we know that this is going to be written from a God who loves us and cares for us. So he says, in spite of all this good, there's false prophets. He looks at history and says, look, it's, 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 it's a matter of history. Read your Old Testament. In your Old Testament, God's people had false prophets come, claimed to be prophets, and they weren't. They would rise up and create spiritual destruction among God's people. And as a result of that spiritual destruction that took place among God's people, God said you're to do away with false prophets. But the people oftentimes didn't follow through with what God told them to do, and so the false prophets multiplied and created more and more destruction. And then Peter says there's no, and, uh, there's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. It's, and you too will have false teachers among you. That's a hard thing to read because you learn that there is no perfect church. There's no perfect church. You're not going to find it this side of heaven. The wheat and the tares, they grow together, side by side. And false teaching creeps into the church. False teaching has a way of coming in and distracts people. I love the way Don set the service out because it distracts you from the truth of God. I love the way Warren Wearsby says it. He says this. You'll see this on the screen. He says, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel, Galatians 1, preached by false ministers, 2 Corinthians 11, producing false Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers, Matthew 13. This is a very direct warning to watch out for false teaching that does not line up with the word of God. This is a very difficult thing to talk about, but a very necessary one because the destructive nature that false teaching can have on the church. Now, notice how he says the word secretly. It's rare for someone to actually get up in church and proclaim, hey, I'm a guest here, I don't love Jesus, and I'm going to do my best to get everybody else not to love him. People don't do that. It's a little more subtle than that. And it's one step after another, and it's one person after another, but there's an intentional approach to getting away from Jesus with false teaching. 
Now, he also contrasts this, and I want you to see this. If you look over at chapter 1, verse 3, you're going to see this. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in him. Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, everything we need. So he says, look, the godly life, he's going to contrast it with the ungodly. He says, everything we need for a life that pleases God is found in him. Who's the him? Jesus. Nailed it. God. Jesus. It's God. It's Jesus. Everything we have is Jesus. Then he contrasts it over here. And he says in chapter 2, the false teachers, they come in and secretly persuade people even away from the one who brought them. Even away from the sovereign Lord. So their truth, the first thing you look for in a false teacher is this, the message. The message. Chapter 1, he says a godly life, the central figure in the godly life is Jesus. If the central figure in any teaching is not Jesus, it's false teaching. He's the hero. He's the hero of every story. He has to be the hero of every story. So he says, watch out for this. He continues on in verses 2 and 3. He says, and many will follow their sensuality. And because, of the way, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Many will follow them. That's a fascinating thing. Many people will follow them, not a small amount. Many people will be enticed by the idea that you don't have to fully obey Jesus, that you can get on a roller coaster instead of an adventure, and that somehow you can still control some things Somehow you don't need to release everything to Jesus. Many people, it actually says, when they says they will follow them, in the Greek that's translated, will follow them to an end. It will continue to pursue, continue to pursue, continue to pursue the sensuality. And it's motivated by greed. So that's an intentional thing. You're like, Rob, but what about the people that don't know that they're false teachers and they don't, they don't, it, they just kind of stumble into it and they say the wrong thing and it doesn't line up. We know how God handles that. Acts 19, when Apollos had his teaching wrong, Priscilla and Aquila come along and they correct it. There's grace. The difference is there is not an innocence here. This is an intentional, greed, selfish, motivated, false teaching to pull people away from the truth of Jesus. And he says you have to watch out for them. And the other thing he says, you have to watch out because many people are going to fall prey to this. Now, how does it happen? Look, I'm convinced you don't fall prey to false teaching like that. You don't just, all of a sudden, you're like, I believe it. Now I don't believe it. It's incredible. It was overnight. That's not the way this works. C.S. Lewis says it best, so I'm going to quote him. He said, if you look in, in the screw tape letters, if you haven't read the screw tape letters, I highly recommend it. He says this it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. So it doesn't matter how big or small it is, it's just a gradual thing. And he says to get him away from the light. Remember, chapter 1, verse 19, 2 Peter. He said, God's word is a lamp unto your feet in a dark place. Satan knows if I can get you away, if I can get the lamp out of your hands, if I can get that out of your way, the darkness will overcome you. He continues, murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In their greed... They will present a very gradual slip into something that is not of God. It's not something you always see coming, but it is something that you allow to sit in your life. See, false teaching has a way of just kind of enticing you. And I'm not, I'm, look, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody here, but I'll tell you, this health and wealth movement, God wants you healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. 
I don't read that in here. People telling you, buy this book, do that. Does it line up with the Word of God? Because eventually, if you allow a little bit in, then a little bit more and a little bit more, you're going to find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be without a lamp lighting your feet in this dark place. See, it's a difficult thing to talk to, but it's a necessary thing. He contrasts again. He says, so the first thing, verse 1, that you look for is the, the message. The second thing you look for is the source of the message. In chapter 1, he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't some clever thing. It was just, what did God say? This is what we do. It's that simple. This is the word of God. This is what we want to do. We're not adding to it. We're not taking away from it. Here's what he said, and here's what we do. He says in chapter Verses 2 and 3, though, he says, no, it was actually cleverly devised. It was false words. Yours might say false words. That's made-up stories. You can translate it. That's just something that people made up. So he says the first thing is the message. The second thing is the source. Who's the source of this false teaching? He says the righteous person, their source is God. The unrighteous person, the false teacher, it's something that man made up. It's just something that man made up and added to this, and so you get swept away by it, and you have to be careful. Again, it's a negative thing to talk about that will produce something positive. Now we get to the part that, you know, you get a little nervous about talking about. Verses 4 through 8. And we're going to put them up here on the screen in just a minute. Sorry, got them again. Um, and he's going to talk about something very, um, very difficult to read. And what it's going to communicate to us is this. Hear me out. How serious God takes false teaching. And then we're going to talk about why God takes it so seriously. And I think after we talk about why he takes it so seriously, you're going to be motivated, and then we're going to look at three different things you can take out of here with you from this passage to help you be on guard. Here's what he says. He says, for, for if God, so it's an if-then. We'll get to the then down in verse 9. But he says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the whole world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Welcome to New Hope. Glad you're here. That's hard. But you see, you can get caught up in the trees and say, well, tell me about this and tell me about this. And I, I don't know that that's Peter's approach here. Peter's trying to give examples that his audience would understand to see the forest. And the forest is this. God cares about false teaching and he will not tolerate it. God calls sin, sin. God will not allow false teaching to come into his church and to pull his people away because of this truth. And I want you to hear this because God's a really good dad and good dads protect their kids. Always. Good dads protect their children, no matter what. Good men protect their family. And God is protecting the family of God. He is protecting his family by not tolerating false teaching. And he says, you cannot sweep it under the rug. You cannot pretend it wasn't there. You cannot pretend it's not that big of a deal. Deal with it. You deal with false teaching. Here's how I think of it. It's a little bit more of a comical way, but this is how I think of this big, serious thing. I don't know why it's the way my brain works. So, you, you know, you, hopefully you'll follow with me here. Anybody in this room, if you're like me, is anybody in the room a sleep talker? Got any co-sleep talkers? What about sleepwalkers? Anybody? Yeah, 
There's two of us. All right, three of us. Good. Every once in a while, I, I talk in my sleep. My wife gets a kick out of it. And every once in a while, I have these dreams that are so vivid. And I'm like, every, just very rarely, I'll get up and react to the dream physically. Well, not long ago, I had this dream. Um, and the dream was one of those dreams. I'm sure you've had this where it felt so incredibly real. Like, ah, uh, and it felt real to me because it was, I was seeing my house, but like everything was where it should be. The walls weren't moving and nothing was out of, everything was where it normally is and the certain things hanging on the wall. It's just, that's my house. So this dream felt so real. And in this dream, I actually saw my backyard for a moment and I saw somebody breaking into the window in my living room. And in the dream, I'm like, this is happening right now. And I knew the person's intent in the dream. They were coming to hurt my kids, not me or my wife. They wanted to bring harm to my children, physical harm. So I'm laying in bed, I guess. I don't remember this part fully, but in the dream, I see them in my living room coming through the window, knowing they're here to hurt my kids. So I did what good dads do, and I got up, and I physically got up, though. It wasn't just in the dream. And I charged out of my bedroom, and I swung the door open, and I ran down the hallway, and I was going for that window. I was going to put an end to anybody who was going to bring harm to my kids. And about right when I got in the living room, I came to. I'm like, oh, just a dream. All right. <laughs> and I go back into the room. I go back into the room, and my wife's like, what happened? What's going on? I said, oh, it's nothing. Go back to sleep. And she said, you can't do that. You can't get up in the middle of the night and run down the hallway. You're not allowed to do that. And I was like, oh, okay. I, it was a dream. And here's what I dreamed. And here's what happened. She's like, you're not, what, what are you reacting to dreams like that? You scared me so bad. And I said, I said two things. Two things, Sarah. I, first, I'm sorry. I didn't control it. I'm sorry. So the second thing is next time, do you want me to send you? <laughs> Someone, someone's breaking in the house to kill the kids, Sarah. Go get them. Like, be grateful that I charged after him. You see, when I read verses 4 through 8, that's what comes into my head. A good dad protects his kids. And God is a really, really, really good dad. And he does not want false teaching coming into the lives of his children. He'll do what it takes. I'll tell you what, as a dad, I want to know what my kids are reading. I want to know what my kids are watching. I want to know what my kids are listening to. I want to know the people that my kids are hanging out with and the places that my kids are going. Why? Because I want to protect my kids because a good dad protects his children. And that's what's true here in this passage. Verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8 tell us God is a really good dad. He protects his kids. And when false teaching rears its ugly head, he's going to do away with it. He's going to do away with it. And he closes out in verses 9 and 10. The Lord knows then, it's if then. So if God did all these things in the past, you who are experiencing this temptation, this difficulty right now, where false teaching comes in, and it's good, it's easy to watch that guy on TV and, 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 and think that somehow God wants me healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. It's easy to fall prey to that. It's easy, it, I'm, I'm just being tempted by all this stuff. What is it? If God did all that stuff in the past, then you need to know this about him. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You need to know he can rescue you too. And he can keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's coming. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Those who intentionally pursue these things, even though they know Jesus should be the Lord of their life, they know that, they intentionally go against that to pursue their own pleasures. You see, they'd rather have a roller coaster than an adventure. And they're going to get as many people onto that roller coaster as they can. Oh, you can still experience some of this cool stuff that Jesus offers, but you don't have to. And it just creeps in slowly. 
And he says, God can protect you. Why? Because God is caring and he loves you. And if he cared about them in the past, he cares about his children now. You can rest in that truth. God is sovereign and just. There's coming a day when he'll put an end to this. Well, why not yet, Rob? Because God is patient that no one should perish. Even the false teachers should have a chance at repentance. God loves all of his children. But there is coming a day when he will tolerate no more the mistreating of his children through false teaching. So now what? What do we do now? Here's the point I want to make to you this morning. When it comes to being a disciple... What happens when you leave this place Monday through Saturday this next week? Here's the thing. Your church will protect the teaching around here to the best of our ability. We have elders that I would trust with my life. And I love that they are shepherds who want to guard the teaching that takes place in this church. I love that. But there's going to come a day when you aren't able to necessarily sit under someone else who's going to only protect you. There'll come an experience in your life one day where someone's going to question and the the foundation you've built your life on or claim to have built your life on, the word of God is going to be tested. And the question's not going to be what church do you go to. The question is going to be what do you believe and why? And in that moment, you're going to realize, and I hope you realize ahead of time, that you cannot delegate everything in life. We just can't. I mean, think about this. There are some things in your life you're just not allowed to delegate. And as you grow and mature, you realize, I can't let someone else do this for me. Like the raising of your children. I can't come along and say, man, brushing hair is hard. I'll delegate that to somebody else to raise my kids for me. It doesn't work. You had a rough week. You can't delegate the dating of your wife to somebody. Men, we should date our wives, period. You have to date your wife, and you can't delegate that to someone else. I had a rough week. Here's 50 bucks. Take her out to dinner. Like, you can't do it. That won't go well, I promise. The same thing is true spiritually. Yes, I'm all for what takes place in this building on Sunday mornings. I love it. We recharge. We get equipped. We get prepared to walk out of here and go make disciples. But you need to go out and make disciples. And when you do that, you need to know why you believe what you believe because it will be tested. And you cannot delegate it to somebody. You are responsible for what you know. And that's what I learned from Second Peter. So what do I do? How do I walk out of here? And how do I know how to handle false teaching? And I, my brain works a little bit weird sometimes, and so this is what comes to my mind. When I think about how do I prepare for false teaching, I think about these flags, okay? Flags pop into my head, and I think there's three words I want to give you, three um, illustrations I want to give you for handling false teaching. You can use this for sin. If you're battling a sin in your life, you can use this for that. The first one is this yellow flag. It's a caution flag, if you will. Say, hold on, I'm hearing something, but I'm not quite sure. Caution not quite sure that's in the word of God. I'm not quite sure that's godly teaching. I'm going to wave this yellow caution flag. And the first word I want you to to write down if you're writing notes is this, recognize false teaching. That feeling in your gut, how do you recognize it? You've spent so much time in God's word that when something doesn't quite line up, you're like, wait, hold on. Yellow caution flag here, hold on. I thought about having a traffic light up here, but then I thought, no, most of you think a yellow light means goes faster, right? And so, (laughs) but it means to get ready to stop, okay? So when it comes to false teaching or sin in your life that you're struggling with, the first thing is you recognize it. Hold on. Hold on. Caution. Hold on. The second thing is after you've kind of begun to slow down and try to check something out, when you realize something doesn't line up with the Word of God, the second thing is a red flag. And you've heard, you got a red flag, red flag. The yellow flag comes first because you're spending time with Jesus and you know what His Word says. So when something doesn't line up with it, yellow flag, then this red flag. Hold on. Stop. 
And stop means I go no further until this is clarified. It's a big deal. Stop. That's not biblical. I don't see that in the Word of God. I don't see that when I open my Bible. So I stop, and the next word is rebuke. First thing, you recognize false teaching. The second thing is you rebuke it. That is not in the Word of God. That is a lie from Satan. That is not true. And I'm holding up the red flag to say stop until we've adequately dealt with this. We will rebuke this. You recognize it? You rebuke it as a lie. And the last one, the last word is replace. You replace it with the truth of God. And here's why that's important. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about this. He says, hey, when you're dealing with demons, when you're dealing with demons, a demon will leave somebody, an unclean spirit, a demon spirit will leave somebody, and it'll wander around. And then that person will seemingly get their life in order. And then the demon will come back and say, hey, it looks like this place is in order. And he'll bring seven of his buddies and go back into that person. And the Bible says, Jesus says, you'll be worse off than you were to begin with. You see, the thing about recognizing sin and false teaching and rebuking sin and false teaching is that you cannot forget to replace it with God's truth. Because sin and false teaching have this really sneaky way of coming back up. We must not just rebuke it as false. We must replace it with truth. You recognize it, you rebuke it, and you replace it. When you're sinning and you have a struggle in your life, a sin struggle, recognize it as sin. Call sin, sin. This is wrong. It's sinful. And how do I know that? I will rebuke it with the truth of God's word. And now I've rebuked that sin in my life or that false teaching, that lie, and now I replace it with a truth that comes from God's word. Here's how that plays out in your life. Let's say you just became a Christian or you've been a Christian for a while. I, I don't know. You're not a Christian yet. This hopefully will make sense to you. But let's say early on in life you remember being told some things about yourself or through experiences you concluded some things about yourself that just weren't good. Let's say you felt like you were a failure. Man, everything I've tried, it just fails. I, I, people call me a failure. They say I'm not good enough. I don't feel adequate. I'm just not good enough for this. And I can't do this. And over and over and over again, you just feel like a failure. And it kind of spreads, that, that lie spreads into other parts of your life. And you just feel defeated. Fill in the blank. It could, it could be something else, but let's go with failure. Then you become a Christian. If someone introduces you to Jesus and you give your life to Jesus, you're, you're baptized, you're part of a group, and you're living this life, and you start to study, and you realize, you, you begin to realize, hold on a second, uh, that was a lie. That's not true about me. And you start studying. Let's say you come across Luke 15, the prodigal son. And you realize, man, this person ran off and did all these things. And now God's back and God doesn't hate me. God loves me. Look at what it says. It says in the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, man, my son was gone, but you're back. Kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. We're going to have a party because you're, you're home. I don't care what you've done or where you've been. You're here and you're valuable. And this is incredible. And you start to look at your life and say, man, that lie is not true of me. It's not true of me. I recognize it. I rebuke it. But the question I have for you is, have you replaced it? Let me reword that question. Do you really believe that? Sitting here today, do you really believe that you're valuable, that you're worthy, that God is absolutely crazy about you, that he wants you to feel worth, that he wants your small story to become a part of his big story? Do you really believe that? Because it's going to be tested. Maybe you feel defeated because you have tension or frustration in your marriage. Maybe you feel frustrated or irritated or like a failure because you keep trying things and all you get is criticism for it. The question I have for you is, will your worth, will your value be 
determined by your circumstances being filtered through the grid of your lies that the world has given to you? Or will you filter your circumstances through the grid of God's truth and redeem those circumstances? Your value is not determined by your circumstances. And you have to know that that's true. But here's the thing, knowing that it's true and walking out of here on Monday and having it be tested at work and tested at home and tested with friends and tested with coworkers. Satan's coming after your foundation. And my question to you is this. Will you be able to recognize those lies, that false teaching? Will you rebuke it with the word of God? And will you replace it with his truth? I'm going to pray for you in a minute, and we're going to sing a song, and I want that song to be, man, a prayer for you. God has called us. He's called us to go make disciples, and Satan wants nothing more than to stop that. And Monday's coming. And Monday won't be easy for everyone. But Jesus has equipped us through 2 Peter. When the lies come and the false teaching comes, we recognize it, we rebuke it, and we replace it. May you be stirred up by way of reminder. Let's pray.